I want to start my sermon this morning by reading to you the commitment that we are going to be studying this morning. This is not scripture, this is a short summary of one aspect of scripture that your elders and pastors have worked on and written. You've heard it already at our last congregational meeting a couple of weeks ago where we announced that we'd be preaching through these five commitments. So I want to read this one that we're studying this morning, Fighting for Truth. Fighting for Truth. Christ's kingdom is established on the truth of his word. And we're committed to defending that truth, especially where it is most under attack today. We and our fellow churches in Evangel Presbytery hold to confessional doctrinal standards which were fought for and passed down to us in the Protestant, Reformed, Evangelical tradition. Furthermore, we are committed to following the example of our fathers in the faith by fighting today's battles against besetting sins in our own life, in the church, and in our society. As one example, we are committed to proclaiming the goodness of God's creation of male and female and the many implications which flow from it, whether it be God's hatred of sexual perversion or his love of fruitfulness and children. And now I want to read those three foundational verses, scripture verses that uh, many more could be added to. Ezekiel 22.30 says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. And Titus 1.9 says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching." so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And then Jude 1, verse 3, says, Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, I have a proposal to make, which is that we should add another verse right now to this, having, having done my uh, preparation this morning and studying and thinking about what needs to be said. Um, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth, which means that if we, the church, give up supporting truth, give up fighting for truth, there is no more 
pillar and foundation of truth in this world. The beautiful thing of that verse, particularly this morning, is that it makes clear the connection between the earlier part of our service where we sang the church is one foundation and we were, we were singing and focusing on scripture passages and receiving new members. And all of those were about the membership of the church and the unity that we have in Christ Jesus together. And this verse takes that and says it's the household of God. It's not just some club here on earth. The church is the household of God and not only that, but it is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so all of a sudden, when you join the church, you're joining yourself to that work. You're joining yourself to that vision, that goal. And it's a, it's a brilliant, glorious vision to be able to stand here and to say, this is us, this is our job. Being the pillar and foundation of truth. Amazing. How could you and I be the pillar and foundation of truth? Well, not you and I, but rather us, the church. The church. And so this is an inescapable truth. The necessity that we have of fighting for truth. And yet even this truth has to be pointed out, taught, and even fought for. Even this truth has to be fought for. So think about why this truth would have to be fought for. One of the main reasons is because there has been a turn away from any view of the church as important. Everything has become individualized to the life of the single Christian. And so you, on your own, studying God's word, which is absolutely true, right? You, on your own, going out and evangelizing. You, on your own, uh, and how you feel, what you feel God is leading you toward. And all these things are good and necessary and true, and yet they are historically understood to happen within the church. And the reason they're historically understood to happen within the church is because that's where they happen. That's where they happen. That is where truth is proclaimed. That is where error is protected against. A man on his own, in his bedroom with his Bible, is where most of the heresies come from. You see, we need each other to guide, to protect, to help, to correct our errors and our sinful desires. Our sinful desires. So fighting for truth, you notice in what we wrote, it says that we're committed to following the example of our fathers in the faith by fighting today's battles against, it first says, besetting sins in our own lives. That is the place, first and foremost, where truth needs to be fought for. Where truth needs 
to be defended. And the reason is because we are easily swayed by the lies of Satan, even though we're Christians. Easily swayed by the lies of Satan. And part of the reason we're easily swayed is because there still remains within us a desire. There are remains of the old man. The old man who the Apostle Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Why? Because he does the things he doesn't want to do. And he doesn't do the things he does want to do. Why? Because there's that remnant that we live with perpetually fighting to put it to death. And that is precisely why we are easily swayed by false teachings, by false teachers, by sins in our own life. Because we have a desire. And anybody who knows anything about himself, can look into his own heart and be like, here's what I want, and here's how I can appeal to it in others. It would be very easy to be a false teacher. Very easy to stop proclaiming truth and to be the teacher that is well rewarded. Because after all, as we read earlier about raising up, or or, or about how Men will come who will be teachers who give people what their itching ears want to hear. That, they, that the people will not want to hear sound truth anymore. But will want to hear things that tell them false lies that let them remain in sin. That don't challenge them to move forward in faith, that proclaim that actually what they want is precisely what they should get. And of course, this is what the world starts with as its assumption. That what you want is good and you should pursue it. A Christian does not start with that assumption. A Christian starts with the assumption, you know, I don't really trust my heart because I know that there's that sinful man that remains and I, I want what God wants. That's my starting point. And I'm going to find out what God wants. And that's what I'm going to pursue. This is completely the opposite of the world's be all you can be, seize the day, And everything that you want, you can have and should have. Of course, there are many uh, ways that you'll hear that taught. You'll, You'll be watching even Christians repeat worldly phrases and sayings like that. And if you're not paying attention, you'll begin to believe them. You'll begin to believe them. So here we are. We have the church, and it is the pillar and foundation of the truth. How can it be the pillar 
and foundation of the truth if Christians are giving themselves to sin. If Christians are pulling from the world, pulling from evil philosophies, pulling teachers to themselves who will tell them what they want to hear. Now, of course, speaking of these things can be very complicated because when I say, you know, what you want to hear, and you think, well, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense, but actually, I want to hear God's truth. Right. This is why Paul goes back and forth, and he's like, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do, and, you know, it, yeah, it, by God's grace, what we desire changes. If you were at the service, the joint service, last week, you heard me preaching on this, and what an important concept it is for us to recognize that God does change what we desire. God changes what we desire. If you weren't able to make it, I encourage you to look up the service over at Grace Bible Presbyterian last Sunday evening and listen to the three sermons that were, we were privileged to hear there. If you only have time for one, mine isn't that long and it's the middle one. It's important. We recognize that, yes, by God's grace, our desires are changed. Our hearts are changed. But always there remains that remnant that we are seeking to put to death. We do not believe in Christian perfectionism. We're not part of the holiness movement that says that once you reach the place where you have finally strangled that inner man to death, that now you're free from sin. Now you're free from the effects of the fall. No, we believe that it is only when we are united with Christ in heaven that that, is finally, that battle is finally done. If the Apostle Paul still struggled with sin, surely you and I still struggle with sin and temptation. So how do we fight for the truth? First, we fight for the truth by seeing in our own lives sins that are going to be tempting to us to want to hear something different, like, oh, you know, that's not so bad. Or just not to hear much about it at all because then we don't have to think about it, right? Thankfully, the church and the fight for truth is not like that old Bob Newhart sketch where he just tells the girl who is afraid of being buried alive in a box to stop it. Stop it. Right? Well, just stop it. And we do need to be told regarding our sin to stop it. Right? But later on in, in that one, in that, in that sketch, she says, well, I also wash my hands a lot. And he goes, oh, well, that's fine. Don't worry about that. There's a lot of germs out there. 
Now, what is that? Why is that funny? It's because he is simply giving his view of the world, right? There's no authority. and, And he's simply saying, oh, well, that's normal because I do that. That's normal because I do that. Well, you don't want a teacher that just says, oh, well, don't worry about that because I do that. You don't want a teacher that, that just says, oh, well, don't worry about that, about everything, right? Because you know you have problems. And so you want a teacher that is honest with you. You want a teacher that is willing to fight for truth and to fight for your soul. For your salvation. And this is Ezekiel. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. This is not Satan speaking. This is the Lord speaking. One of the ways that we need to recognize that we are to fight for truth is standing for God's people, calling, like Moses did, on the Lord to be true to his word to save his people. Moses stood in that gap when the Lord said he was ready to destroy the people and start over with him. He said, no, no. And he stood in that gap between God and the people. Now, this is not normally what we think of when we think of fighting, right? Fighting, fighting for truth. The Ezekiel passage is not the only place where we see this, though. Like I said, Moses also argued with the Lord, and Jacob wrestled. With God and would not let go until he blessed him. And so we fight for truth by running after God, by not letting go, by refusing to accept anything besides him fulfilling his promises. You think, well, you, you're, you're speaking as though he might not. No, he will. But just like prayer, right, we are commanded to pray and then how could that possibly make a difference if he's sovereign? Nevertheless, the prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. Accomplish much. So here we are, we have Standing in the gap brought up in Ezekiel. And there are a number of passages, this passage has a number of verses that explain all the ways that teachers in particular are responsible for the protection and the safety of the individuals. So part of what's going on here is that those individuals have given themselves over to sin And the man who stands in the gap stands between God and the people and says, wait, be patient, be merciful, hold on. Remember your promises, God. 
And then he turns around and he turns to the people. It's not where it stops, right? He turns around and he turns to the people and he says, Repent before it is too late. Remember God's promises. Remember his covenant. Be faithful to him. Come back to him. And this is one of the main ways that you stand between God and the people. It's not just by looking to God, it's by looking to the people and saying, Repent. The axe is ready to fall and to chop the tree down. God is ready to judge. And of course, these are truths that people who are ready to raise up teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, don't want to hear. We don't want to hear about God's judgment. So that I would not destroy it, he says. But I found no one. What was missing? Anyone who cared about truth. Anyone who was willing to proclaim God's truth. Years ago, I wrote an open letter asking pastors here in Cincinnati to join me in publicly opposing a city ordinance that was about to be passed, prohibiting counselors from speaking God's truth to those tempted to reject the sex that God made them, or to those tempted to give themselves over to same-sex attraction. Today this would be called, uh, the law was called Lely's Law, I think. And so what what they were doing was they were proclaiming that in Cincinnati, it was no longer acceptable for God's word to be proclaimed to those who were struggling with issues related to gender and sexuality. The fines were substantial, and it was about to be passed. And so I wrote about it. And of course, I didn't expect that it would turn into a big thing, but it did. Somehow people started reading it, sharing it, and pretty soon there were a lot of people who were mocking God's word related to homosexuality, related to uh, transgender issues, the entire... LGBTQIA plus agenda was what was at stake and what was being promoted in this law. And so I was caught a little bit off guard that it got traction in the first place. But where I was really caught off guard was that 
Sure, there were a lot of people that were very angry. There were a lot of mockers. There were a lot of people who said, I, you know, go crawl back in the hole you came out of and, and things like that. What shocked me, though, was that it was a local conservative reformed pastor who was the most virulent in attacking me. He was very angry. I remember sitting down and meeting with him for him to confront me over my sin in writing this post. And what he said was, I looked up your website, you know, and I saw you're, you're proclaiming Christ, advancing his kingdom. That's so wonderful. And, and I looked at your post and Christ wasn't anywhere in it. Christ wasn't anywhere in it. How is this advancing his kingdom? How does this help proclaim Christ? And this is the question before us for this sermon today. How in the world could fighting for truth possibly be advancing his kingdom? How could it proclaim Christ to speak into conflicts of the day? Because that's, of course, where truth is either being upheld or falling. The conflicts of the day, right? And historically, in the past, when the West was much more fundamentally Christian, okay, much more fundamentally religious, that everything about life was bound up with religion in the Middle Ages, for example. There wasn't, there wasn't some separation. All of life was viewed as one thing. Now we've kind of got these very clear separations. But back then, all of life was one thing. And so the conflicts were often over religious things. The conflicts were over religious things. This is what we see when we look back to the Protestant Reformation, right? They had vast ramifications in the political realm and in the individual realm. Absolutely, right? But the conflict was religious at its core. This is still the case when you fast forward to the evangelical tradition that's mentioned here in our, in our commitment. The evangelical tradition comes out of a religious conflict. Is God's word true or not? Can we believe it or not? Is it full of errors or not? And so, there have always been people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but who reject his truth. Evangelicalism was a fight for that very thing. Does it matter whether God's word is true or not? Does it matter whether we have truth or not? And so to be in the evangelical tradition is to say truth matters. It's to say truth matters, that's it. And God's word is true first and foremost. That we can trust his word. And so... It's not enough simply that there be truth in it, but that it is true. 
Because there is truth in many things. And this is one of the things that Christians love to do is to point out truth in other things. And part of the reason we like to do it is because then we feel justified in being entertained by whatever we want. Oh, well, but I found this truth in this movie. Okay. But was the movie able to be characterized as what you are to dwell on? And what are you to dwell on? Any of you kids know what verse I'm talking about? Think on these things, dwell on these things. You can tell me. Go ahead. The fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, go ahead. Philippians 4.8, which says what? Oh, it says think on these things, but what things? Whatever is true. Oh, but we've got that one covered. Keep going. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Is that it? Think. No, it's not? What? If anything is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy. Now, Ask yourself if the movie where you found a little bit of truth is that. Is that. Pure, excellent, praiseworthy, beautiful. You see, we don't look at the Bible and be like, oh well, you know, I was reading and there was this metaphor in there and then I found there was this truth. There was this fundamental truth underneath. This is what Carl Jung says. Okay? That, that there's some, some deeper... This is, this is what Jordan Peterson says. That there's some fundamental truth underneath the Bible. The Bible came up out of these more fundamental truths. And so this, is, this has truth, but it is not true. It has truth in it. We start with the Bible. We start with the fact that it is true. So, here I am, I'm meeting with this pastor. And he's so angry at me and he says, Where is Christ in that? Where is Christ in that? Pull up, pull up Chrome. Do a search. Where's Christ in what you wrote? And you know what happened? I got very depressed. Not because I was Not because I was shocked that there was a pastor who was conservative and reformed who was disagreeing with what I had said or with me saying it publicly or something. No, actually, I got depressed because he convinced me. He convinced me a little bit. I thought, you know, 
what, what am I doing? Is this necessary? What is, what is necessary? It took me weeks before I could get up the nerve to actually do what he had said, to pull up Chrome and open up the article I'd written and, and do a search. Actually, I then just read the whole thing again. And you know what I found in it? I found that I had clearly laid out the gospel of Jesus Christ explicitly in what I had written. Where was Christ in it? Christ was central to what I had written. The gospel message and the advancement of his truth was absolutely fundamental to what I had written. And yet, maybe I just have a really bad memory. I don't know. He was able to convince me that what I had written didn't have that in it. Fighting for truth is hard, hard work. And it is always, when we proclaim the truth that the world needs to hear, that we are most likely to get a reaction of people who don't want to hear it. And it's especially true that when we do that, other Christians are going to feel threatened. Other Christians are going to feel threatened. And so I know another pastor who here in town has recently begun to publicly proclaim God's simple truths about sexuality. Not in some political sphere, not related to some ordinance, but just simple truths. Like God made man first and then woman and that means something for us today. It's shocking. It's countercultural. It's also true. It's also quoting the Bible. And yet, a local pastor who he has worked closely with in the past is attacking him. A local conservative pastor, a local reformed pastor, a local pastor who claims to be against feminism, or at least did eight years ago when I met him. I also read this week about a man who's being investigated by the police in another country for writing a letter to his council members pointing out the horrors of abortion. He's going to be interviewed at the police station because of this. What all of these examples show is that telling the truth is itself a fight. Telling the truth is aggressive. It's offensive. It's also defensive, all right, but either way, it's part of a conflict, a conflict between truth and error, a conflict between right and wrong, a conflict between what we want to hear and what we want to hear, right? Because, because we're Christians, we, we actually want to hear 
a call to confess our sins, and then we also have something remaining in us that wants to hear, you don't have to, you're good. It's all okay. But it's a fight either way. And sometimes that fight is with non-Christians, and other times it is with people who are Christians. Paul found himself fighting for truth against people who were inside the church. I want to read another passage. We read Jude, and Jude described that, but let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 12. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. He's being sarcastic, okay? You need to understand how he's writing. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Actually, I'm going to stop there. We are destroying speculations. The destruction of fortresses. That's what our weapons are capable of. The destruction of fortresses. But not fortresses that we think of when we think of the Second Amendment. Because our weapons are not guns. Our weapons are not according to the flesh. Our weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What sort of fortresses is he talking about? The philosophies of demons. These are what we have often called worldviews. Worldviews. What is Paul doing here? Paul is obeying God's command to contend earnestly for the faith. Paul is obeying the command to contend earnestly for the faith. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like conflict within the church. It looks like conflict within the church in this case. And so I should not have been surprised that it was a fellow Christian pastor 
that was attacking me most critically Here Paul is contending earnestly for the faith. And what does he have to do? He has to defend himself. He has to defend himself. Why? Because those who are seeking to lead the people in Corinth astray are using ad hominem attacks to attack the Apostle Paul and to proclaim untrue doctrines that will harm the church. Paul doesn't get the privilege of engaging in a formal debate. I know they teach debate here, and my son has been able in the last week to engage in a couple of formal debates. That's kind of fun. Paul doesn't get that privilege, though. The Lord is going to have to be the judge. The Lord is going to have to be the judge. And so, Verse 10, he says, They say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. What does that have to do with anything? That's what they're using to attack the truth. And so because that's what they're using to attack the truth, Paul has to address it. He doesn't just get to say, that's ad hominem. That's disallowed. He says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in words by letter when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Don't you believe it about me? Don't you believe it about me? Why do we need to fight for truth? And why does it so often look personal? Well, we need to fight for truth because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Think about that. Do you care what the truth is? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. <clears throat> Satan, on the other hand, is the father of lies. So, you can look at Jesus and you can say, he is truth. And I can ask you, okay, so do you care about truth? And of course you say, well, yeah, yeah. I love. And then I say, okay, on the other hand, we can talk about Satan. And Satan is the father of lies. And do you care about truth? Yeah. Oh, yeah, actually, now that you mention it, I don't want to be taken in by Satan. Truth matters. In fact, our salvation is dependent on us knowing the truth. Believing lies leads to hell. 
Believing lies leads to hell. Not every lie, not any lie, but certain lies. God doesn't care. God is happy if you just try your best. God isn't real. You believe these lies, you have no salvation because you have not Jesus Christ who is the truth. Our salvation is dependent on truth. It is the faithful word. And so this is what it means, as we saw before, to stand in the gap. God's people are at risk of being judged by God if they are not told the truth. If they're not told the truth. They will be judged and they will suffer the consequences. But who will suffer greater than them? The one who didn't tell them the truth. So why do we fight for truth? Because lies are destructive. Lies lead to hell. Some of the truths that are under attack today, one of them is mentioned in our commitment that male and female, he created them. What's at stake there? Why does that matter? Why is it that the world is intent on denying that there's any distinction and any difference between male and female? Ultimately, what's being attacked? Again, if you were there last week for the evening service discussing abortion, it's the image of God that's under attack. It's the image of God that is being destroyed when we declare that we are not what God has made us. We are not male and female, but we are a rainbow of things in between. What's at stake there, ultimately, why has it become so popular to fight against this? It's because the world hates God, and in particular, they hate that He is our Father. The fatherhood of God is what is under attack. When you see male and female attacked in man, part of what's going on is that God the Father is under attack. Truth matters. Is God our Father, or is that just some sort of metaphor? Another example of something where truth is under attack is the historicity of Adam, 
or the question of whether Adam was a real man, whether there was any such person as Adam ever. What's at stake there? Why does it matter? Who cares? The world's completely convinced about evolution, and who cares if, if they... Well, again, what's at stake is whether man is different from any animal. The image of God, whether man is different, made in the image of God or not. That's part of what's at stake. The image of God in man is central to many of the battles of the day. But another thing that's at stake that many people don't realize is that Jesus is at stake. Jesus is the second Adam. And scripture is clear in declaring to us who Jesus is in relation to the first Adam. Just as by one man sin entered the world, it says, speaking of the first Adam, so by one man, and it begins to speak of Jesus Christ. And so the question becomes, do we believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Was there ever one man Jesus? Does it really matter if there was ever one man Jesus? Or is it just conceptually an important idea that, that we lay down our lives for one another? No. He needed to lay his life down for us. What's at stake? Do we need to believe in Jesus or do we need to just believe in a metaphor? That's what's at stake. And so, we speak. We speak God's truth. We argue. We proclaim. Boldly. Without fear. Knowing that it will have a cost. It will have a cost. As I said before, fights for truth bring along personal animosities. Right? In fact, oftentimes... Fights for truth are confused for personal animosity because of this. Jude 1.16 says, These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. An advantage against whom? Against those who are speaking God's truth. Against the Apostle Paul, for example against the Apostle Peter. So people in the church are sometimes those who are false teachers, as we see in Jude. And that's where Jude is really focusing. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul is speaking to the people in the church who are being misled by faithless teachers.
And we must count the cost of fighting for truth and not be surprised when conflict comes from our brothers. And when people are offended and think that we are simply attacking other Christians. We have to be able to judge between what is a fight for truth and what is a personal animosity. Right? We have to be able to make a distinction between those things. And then we must remember our weapons are not of the flesh. It is such a temptation today for Christians to turn to weapons of the flesh. Peter drew the sword when Christ was being arrested. And Jesus said, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. You might accomplish something, but not what he's looking for. Not what he's looking for. Or more pointedly, unless his truth is first established, no other political or physical weapon will accomplish anything. It is only when his truth is established that people's lives are changed. That communities are changed. That countries are changed. And so it is by his truth that he transforms this world. Not by hiding the truth. Not by convincing people that He's a nice guy. His truth. And so we must fight for it. Without fear. And without shame. And without... Without being afraid to, for it to look personal. Like it did with Paul. But knowing... That when his truth is proclaimed, there's going to be a reaction. There's going to be a reaction. And some will smell life and will rejoice and will be added to our number. And some will smell death and will hate us all the more. Let's pray. Father, when we think of what's at stake with the battles that, wait, that are raging today in our nation, it's easy for us to see the earthly things that are at stake. Peace, prosperity, the ability to Engage in a peaceful, quiet life. And so it is, Father, that we pray for our rulers. That they would be men who fear you, who love truth and justice. 
But Father, we recognize that the fight for truth is only going to be waged and won by your church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so, Father, help us not to be ashamed of the wonderful truths that you have given to us. Help us not to be confused. Help us not to be afraid when we receive attacks and accusations against our personal character. And Father, we pray that you would not hide your truth from the world, but that we would be a glorious light to the nations. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.